I don't think I can actually help you become more professional at all. But I think what I can help you do is become a lot more authentic. I don't want to help people get a professional experience. I want to help people tap into who they really are and show up more authentically. And authenticity comes from really developing self-confidence. Self-confidence comes from doing things that you're not sure of that you can do and then doing them and then becoming more confident and then being more likely to show up to that situation with your unique abilities and talents. I've tried to role model that for the last several years for people so I can hopefully inspire them to do the same thing in their daily life. And I think what I can help you do is tap into more of like who you actually are at your core so you can show up better for whatever you're going to do and hopefully be more fulfilled and successful because of that. Chris Niku has been a top performing leader in the Cutco Vector Marketing sales organization for many years. His great strength is his ability to show up authentically in all of his interactions. And his belief is that authenticity tops professionalism. Chris has been a strong role model for how others can tap into who they really are in order to be the best they can be in daily life and have more success and more fulfillment in the process. I know you will enjoy this entertaining and inspiring conversation with Chris Niku. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome, everybody. I am with Chris Naku today, one of the foremost district managers in the Cutco Vector Marketing Sales Organization. It's been a great leader with the company for many years. He started selling Cutco back in 2002 with Kevin Hanna, by the way. And he became a district manager in 2005 after graduating from the University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. Chris, as I mentioned, has been a great leader as a district manager for many years. He has produced over $16 million in Cutco sales, and he operates in Brookfield, Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee. Chris Naku, welcome to the podcast, man. Dan, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's about time, right? I mean, I feel like it's about time for this one. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. So I appreciate the invitation. <laughs> well, for anybody else out there who's listening and thinking, you know, it's about time for me to be on, feel free to contact me and invite yourself. So <laughs> uh, anyway. For the record, Chris did not invite himself. I have invited Chris and uh, really looking forward to this one. Chris, let's start with a little bit of your personal background. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I had a feeling I was going to at some point go into sales because my background was, I think I always saw like an opportunity in entrepreneurship through through my life. When I was uh, 
going to elementary school, I used to buy string to sell to kids to make bracelets. I didn't want to make the bracelets myself, but I would sell the string out of my my desk, right, in a private elementary school. And as I proceeded, I got to middle school and I started selling candy out of my locker uh, at lunchtime. I actually got suspended for that. My, my dad wasn't mad about that, though. I think he might have had a little bit of pride because he was helping me buy the candy. But I got suspended in middle school for selling candy. And then when I got to high school, I took a class, uh, entrepreneurship class, and we came up with the project of the girls of Franklin calendar, as well as guys of Franklin. We want to be equal opportunity there. And we, you know, we made some money there. And my senior year, I took it again without credit because I wanted to see if we could improve on the performance. And then we did, but then the school told me I couldn't profit during a class. And so they took all my money away from the profit. So I was upset about that, but uh, I I went to school for marketing. I was double marketing, uh, major marketing finance. And I took, till I took my first finance class and, after I took the first finance class, I dropped that pretty quickly and it was it was marketing all the way for me. So I had a feeling I was gonna go into that area. I just had no idea how I was how I was going to transition to there when I was when I was growing up. Yeah. Well then how did you end up finding Cutco and, and uh getting into sales with Vector? Yeah, so I was between my sophomore and junior year in school at Oshkosh. And I remember <laughs> I remember I had the thought that I need to be more open minded to things. And I had been I was very clear about what I wanted to do that summer in that I didn't want to get a job. I wanted to hang out with my friends as much as possible because where I was is I felt like that was really the last opportunity I had to not be responsible and, and try to like think bigger picture, but just marinate in the opportunity to hang out with my friends and maximize the time I had left at 20 years of age. So the first three weeks I was sitting around a lot on my on my parents' couch and my mom would often come home to find me passed out with like dirty food plates all over the place and kind of sleeping during the afternoon. <laughs> after about after about three weeks of that, she's like, all right, seriously, you need a job. And I said, I'm, Mom, I appreciate it. I'm good. Thanks a lot. We're, we're good. And she kept repeating that again and again. And I got really good at tuning her out. And eventually my dad said, hey, you need a job. And I said, Dad, I, I don't need a job. And he said something like, you know, if you don't get a job, we're going to kick you out. And my dad's not a person that actually backs up threats. And I'm like, you're not serious, but I hate being told what to do. So eventually I was like, fine, I'll get a job. And so... Uh, back in 2002, there was no Google, there was no internet searches, it was all newspapers. And so uh, the idea of looking for a job was not exciting. And literally the next day, a letter shows up from Vector says summer work opportunity, uh, opportunity. And I was like, this must be a sign. And it said something about said something about marketing. I'm like, I'm a marketing major. This makes sense. It said something about outdoor sporting accessories. I must have skipped the whole part about kitchen stuff, but just saw sporting accessories. I was like, football's intense. Must be what I'm selling. <laughs> <laughs> and so it said, call for an interview. And I'm like, all right. So I call and, uh, you know, I call and they're like, we'd like to have you come in tomorrow at 11 o'clock. I'm like, oh, gosh, 11, it's so early. All right, I'll be there. <laughs> I, I show up and I walk in and there's 20 plus people in the waiting room. I'm like, who are these people? Why are they here for my interview? And so I was like, all right, I don't know what's going on, but apparently it's time to compete and, and impress. So let's, let's do this thing. And I got invited for the group interview and there's 20 plus people in the room. I didn't know what was going on, but I remember her talking for 90 minutes about stuff for the kitchen. And my thought was, hey, this this girl must know more about stuff for the kitchen than I do because she's talking for 90 minutes. And what stuck out to me more than anything was the commission. I remember being like, I don't know if I'm going to sell anything, but the idea that I can make 30% of whatever I sell, if I sell something, sounded exciting because I could do math. Back then, the average order was $180. 30% of 180 is $54. And I was like, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but the the, the chance that I could make 54 bucks in an appointment sounds pretty good. Sign me up. In the interview <laughs> process, she, 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 uh, she said, why should I accept you? I don't know what I said. I just talked for five minutes until she eventually said, stop talking. You have a job. 
<laughs> awesome. And uh, she's like, all right, when would you like to get started? We have training that starts tomorrow or next week. And I was like, definitely next week. And so I can remember going home and telling my parents, like, I was excited. I rolled the windows down. Music was up. I got home and my parents were like, how'd the interview go? Kind of like the look of like, what, how did it go? I'm like, well, how, what do you mean how to go? I got the job. And she's like, what are you going to do? And I said, probably the silliest thing that most people can say when you talk about the job. And I said, you know, I gave her 5% of the, the information I received in 90 minutes. I said, I'm going to sell knives. And my parents both looked at each other and said, did they ask for money? I said, no. And then the next question is, are you sure? I said, yeah, no, they never asked for me for money. And so they, they told me, you know, this is not the job we wanted you to get. I said, well, you told me to get a job. I got a job. I'm excited to do it. So I'm going to do it. And then we kind of went back and forth. My mom said, fine, do whatever you want. I said, exactly. That's what I'm going to do. And so she asked me a third time. They said, did they ever ask for money? I said, no. And if they ever ask for money, I'll just get up and leave because they didn't tell me that. So, you know, let me go. And I don't start for eight days. So leave me alone for the next eight days. So that's essentially how I ended up in training. And, you know, back in Wisconsin, we've been on the free loaner program for over 20 years. So at yep. no point was never asked for money. So I was never concerned. And if they would have asked, I'd be like, see you later. But they held up on their end of the bargain as far as what they said they're going to do. Yeah, you guys in Wisconsin pioneered the free loaner program. So that worked out good for you. Otherwise, uh, might have been uh, on the shit list with your parents here for uh, a lot worse. Yeah. And you had and you had eight days of reprieve. I did. Yeah, I, it was great. I did, probably did a whole lot of nothing. I did work out every day just to just throw that out there. I was playing college sports, and so that was important. But anything besides taking out with my friends and working out and playing some basketball around that didn't really matter. So I was I was excited about a chance to make some money for lifestyle. So yeah, I like that you had the thought that you needed to be more open minded to things, and that that kind of led you to find a job like this that was different and and much more uh, unique and demanding. I guess you can say. It's just crazy to think like if I wouldn't have had that thought the week before I got the letter, would I would I be here now? Like where would my life be potentially if I wouldn't have had that that one random thought that kind of came to me? Yeah, exactly. I have a similar initial story in that I you know I was working I was working at a movie theater, but uh, that was not any, a job where I could learn anything, and certainly the opportunity to be able to to have a chance to learn through my work was something I thought I could use. And that that's what, what I found when I came to Applied Vector also. So what stands out for you uh, as far as experiences in the, the early days? I, I think the big things, even just from that initial story, was kind of trusting my instincts and trusting like my intuition to be guided in, in certain situations. My dad, I found out after doing, I did an appointment for my parents. They were like my third or fourth appointment after doing a couple appointments. My dad, essentially, I walk in after my first two appointments for the day and he kind of looks at me like, how's it going? Basically, like, are you ready to quit? And I said. <laughs> just sold two sets. Let's roll. You know, and my dad's like, all right, let's do this thing. And we do the presentation for, for me and my mom. And my mom, like, she cuts the leather and she's like almost falls through. She like screams. And then eventually I ask, hey, do you want to get this? And she says, yeah. And then my dad, after the appointment, essentially goes, I can see why they do what they do. I just don't think you're going to do well with this. And I was so pissed when he said that because I was like, when have I ever quit anything ever in my life that I've been serious about? And so that might've gave me a little chip on my shoulder in terms of that. And, you know, by the end of summer, I didn't feel like I had really done anything different, right? I feel like I just was always me, but I never had a, like an essentially a platform to do something on a professional level to kind of demonstrate my abilities. You know, I had sports to do that with, I had school to do that with, and I was always above average in those things, but I never done anything professionally to demonstrate what I was capable of. And I can remember my dad, Essentially, we were driving, you know, somewhere in Milwaukee. I can remember the exact, the exact location on the, the road, even 20 years later. And he looks at me and my dad doesn't say stuff like this. He says, you know, me and your mom are really proud of you. I'm like, for what? 
And he's like, the job you've done this summer, we just never thought you were going to take it seriously. And you, you're just more mature. And I'm like, I mean, I guess I don't think so. I just feel like I finally had something that I could do something with that demonstrated what I'm capable of. And so I think, you know, the biggest lessons I have from that, from that first summer is trust your instincts and trust like your intuition that you're putting yourself in situations that, that are going to help you be successful and that, you know, not everyone's opinions, even though they are your parents' opinions are not always valued in everything. And so I started to really, I think I was already kind of raised to be an independent person, but that really kind of helped me see that I should trust and I should like lean into the things that I believe in and, and versus like asking for someone's approval in certain situations. And I also believe in just betting on yourself. And that's one of the things I've loved about the job is the second summer I came back and as an assistant manager, I think I made like $10,000. And that at that time was really good money. And I did not do smart things with that money after I made the money, but it afforded a lifestyle that I never would have had. if I wouldn't have chose to bet on myself. And I can remember talking to people that I worked with at other jobs and they said, I would never do something like that. And I remember taking the advice from this lady who was like a, a mid-manager at Tommy Hilfiger, which is where I was working for 625 an hour. And she's like, that sounds terrible. And I just remember looking at her and go, great, I don't want your life. So I'm going to definitely leave this job right now and hold <laughs> out on, on Cutco. So that's kind of yeah. what I did. Amazing. So cool to hear uh, what you experienced there at the start and, and uh, the idea of just trusting your instincts, leaning into what you believe in, right? Betting on yourself. Just uh, really some strong, strong thoughts for people to to think about how how that applies to so many things that they might do in life. For sure, excellent. Yeah, um, tell us more about uh, some of the early days, early years as you started selling Cutco and climbing the ladder a little bit during college. Um, what were some other things that you experienced? So, as a, I can think about like when I was a. I remember my first summer. I came in and. Me and Dane Aspergard, some of you might have heard of Dane before. He's a he's a somewhat well-known. No, I'm just kidding. Me and Dane started the same summer together in the same office. And we both, I actually got promoted to key staff before him, just throwing that out there. And I remember walking into the office one day and I was, this is when we're doing in-person appointments. And I came back in and started complaining to one of the assistant managers about how an appointment went. And there was a new rep in there that I didn't realize there was a new rep in there. And I was just complaining. And apparently the rep was about to quit. And then I came in and was like, this job is this, is, this, is, this, you know, just complaining up a storm. And then after the rep left the room, the assistant manager pulled me aside and said, you can't ever do something like that ever again. Cause you have no idea of the influence you have when you say stuff like that. And I was like, wow, I, I guess I didn't realize the gravity of like, when I speak in those situations, like what that happens. And so like, just, I became more conscious of being a leader. And that was something I always wanted to be growing up was a leader. Like if you would ask me when I was 18, what do you want to be? I was I don't I don't know. I just know I want to lead. And what was cool about the early opportunity in Cutco is we get the company gives people an opportunity to lead at a very young age. And I thought that was an awesome thing. I can remember going to my first conference and in 2002 we had that exponential year of growth where you know when people were ordering stuff it was eight to twelve weeks out for shipping because we just exploded that year. <laughs> and, and so SC2, I remember getting invited to SC2 and there had to be a thousand plus people there, maybe 1500 people. I don't know, but it was just an obnoxiously big event. And I can remember thinking before I went, I'm like, this is going to be a weird conference. It's going to be like Dungeons and Dragons, like knife nerds and just like super weird. And I remember going to the conference and being like, holy cow, there are a lot of really attractive people walking around here. Maybe this place isn't what I thought it was, but it was just this, this gravity. And I remember getting introduced to some people at that point. Dave Durand, I think, had just got promoted to region manager at that time and, and hearing him speak. And I had never been to a motivational conference or like a, a self-development environment before. And just hearing him talk, I was like, I don't know who this dude is. 
I thought he was like Maximus Decimus Meridius and that more, you know, just how he was built and how he spoke. And I was like, I don't know what this dude's about, but I am, I, I will run for, a, I will run through a wall with this guy because this guy is amazing. And so I want to be here longer. And so just, you know, that experience and kind of going through college and, and learning what I've learned, it, it was, it was kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Awesome. You mentioned, uh, Dave having had a, a key influence on you in those early days. Tell us about uh, the people who were the primary influences on your career. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned I started with Kevin Hanna. I remember going to Kevin Hanna once. Kevin, and if you guys, don't, well, Kevin Hanna is like the Godfather. That's what we called him in Wisconsin forever because essentially everything started with Kevin. Kevin was one of those guys that's just super giving and super generous with his time. And I can remember uh, there was times where I was I was in the vector world before I became a district manager for about three summers. And the third summer, I was I was very much out. And he essentially allowed me to come back, even though I didn't deserve to come back. He allowed me and put me in a position of, of leadership and authority and, and really kind of helped me see what's possible and give me some grace. He was also the one that I said, that said, you should go, you should be at least interviewing for the district manager position. I was like, Kevin, why would I ever want to do that? I, I got to do, I have a real job at some point. And he's like, Chris, I have six kids. This pays the bills. Maybe you should consider this as a career. And so Kevin was definitely instrumental in keeping me around. Uh, I remember asking him one time too, I'm like, hey, you should probably be like, getting close to hall of fame at some point. Right. And he was like, Chris, I hit that like 10 years ago, except I can't hit it in my position. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and then I would definitely say Dave Durand after Kevin was super influential to me just because of the situation in Wisconsin, we didn't really have a division manager per se. So when I went out as a DM, he was essentially default my, my division manager. And so we had a really interesting relationship and it was probably a lot closer than most DMS and RMs. And so he took me under his wing. I, I had probably been in his house on the lake. I don't know, thirty times. When by the time, uh, by the time you know, two thousand ten or twelve or all around, but uh, he was always just super influential to me. He was a really influential. I learned like how to speak with him and like how to just a lot of different things in his influence and just how to be a man of integrity. Uh, he gave me a rule that I thought was really important my first year as a as a DM, and it was the hundred dollar rule. And it's because he was running a region, we talked very infrequently, so he let me make mistakes and kind of really develop my independence. And he said, "You know, Chris, if you want to spend more than a hundred dollars on something, you need to ask me. And if you can't get a hold of me, just assume I said no. So basically, you can't spend over a hundred dollars on anything." And I took it to heart because I remember one of the things and one of the reasons I trusted Dave and the people I knew I was going to be working with is my parents asked me, could you be successful as a DM? And I said, you know what? I don't know if I can, but I'm going to trust that the people above me have my best interest at heart and I'm going to listen to what they say. And so Dave said, you can't spend a hundred dollars or more on anything. And I, I took that really to heart. And within the first 18 months, I'd saved over $70,000 as a district manager. Wow. And I, and I remember that Christmas I gave my parents my dad specifically, right? I gave him, um, my dad, mom had already had Cutco and I gave my dad a, a catalog of, of Cutco. And in the catalog, I put, I think, $2,000 in $100 bills scattered throughout the catalog and said, hey, I got you something for Cutco too. And that was a really cool thing to be able to do because I had money that you know I would never have thought I would have had after 18 months of doing a job. Amazing. So that was cool. If that, uh, I could keep going with, in terms of other people. Like Greg Strine was essentially my first official division manager. And what I loved about Greg was me and Dane were essentially the only two people in the division. And he allowed us to kind of be us. There'd be times at staff meetings where as the this division grew, me and Dane were always kind of goofy and playful. And we would, we, we have this, we had this habit of throwing stuff across the room in each other's mouths. And so Greg would be talking and all of a sudden we'd throw something and Greg would actually stop the meeting to let us do this. 
and we would catch stuff in the mouth. And he, he was always just super encouraging of our culture and our playfulness. And just, I think that also had a big gravitational force later for developing people and recruiting people into the business because they saw that, you know, we didn't take ourselves too seriously, but we had a lot of fun and we, we, we were who we were. And I think that was an awesome thing. And he always was really encouraging of just having ideas that maybe were a little bit outside the box. He gave me energy towards those things. I think about people like Mike Muriel, who even from, from afar, he was in Chicago and we were in Wisconsin, but he would take me and Dane to events with this division. And he was kind of fostering that relationship from afar. And he was ultimately the person that brought me back to the business, which was kind of a cool thing. I think about Justin Donald, you know, who was, I've listened to him on financial stuff since, since man, since 2009 about anything he said. And he was great at introducing me to people around the company to really kind of make the connections. I remember meeting Jesse Levine for the first time and it's the topic of conversation. I won't repeat, but just meeting these guys. I'm like, wow, this guy's the guy that did $2 million. And what we're talking about, this just seems crazy. And I remember being on our first trip in uh, my first company trip was to Cabo, Mexico and, and Donald talking to all the people and all the movers and shakers. And that trip really made me be like, I need to be here longer. Cause at that point I had just finished my first year. It was okay. I barely qualified for the region incentive trip for January. And then six weeks later, we were in Mexico and, and just introduced me to all these people. And that's when we had this like exponential growth that summer that year. And just, I, I wanted to be around longer because I saw the people that I was like on a larger scale for the company. And I thought that was really cool. Danny Lewis in the last couple of years as my, as my manager, as my, uh, my division manager, really kind of showing me what, what uh, I think just generosity looks like and humility looks like. And he really, I think, gave me the platform to really develop the stuff I believe in now for the last four or five years in terms of just speaking my truth and my belief and allowing me the, the latitude to, to do those things. And I think that was great. Uh, Trent Booth, uh, when I came back to the business in 2014, he really encouraged me to kind of just tap into to what I believe in, and be my authentic self and, and how to give a message and how to speak a certain way. And I think that's really become a trademark of that. And, you know, last but not least, I would talk about Dane Espergaard. Dane was, you know, it's hard to say, like, you know, as a person of influence, but he's been there more than anyone else. And I, Dane is, is my best friend inside and outside the business. And just his camaraderie when we were growing up and then his outside influence when he was kind of watching me in, in the business and his performance. I remember going to field training. I left the business in 2012 and was gone for two years. And when I was considering coming back, Mike had me go field training with Dane during SC2. And the idea was Mike was going to pay for three days for me to go out there and watch. And this is right before Dane and, and Brooke were about to get married. And uh, I go and watch him run the business. And no joke, every order called in, he was running his alliances. And I'm kind of field training after two years of a hiatus. And every order Dane got that day was a thousand dollar plus order. It was like PDI, thousand dollars, thousand dollars, thousand dollars, thousand dollars. And I was like, what the hell has changed in the last two years that this is happening? And I remember him looking at me and just basically being like, I'm at the point in my career that I don't tell people what to do anymore. I just tell them what to think. So when something happens, when they have a chance to think about what it means, I don't let them think. I just tell them how to think about that particular thing. And that kind of, with the same point, made me think, hey, Dane's probably reached that 10,000 hour threshold of expertise, right? Of where you master your craft. And it was just exciting to see because I was like, man, I probably wasn't very far away from that when I left the business. Maybe it wouldn't take me that much longer to get to that point where I'm where I hit the level of mastery in this in the business. And that gave me a lot of just belief. And so I was supposed to be there for three days. I ended up being there for 10 days with Dane. And uh, at that point, I was like, it's it's time to come back. Let's do this thing. Wow. What an amazing list of influences that you have been around. And it just really speaks to the power of 
the community that we've built here at Vector and the amazing people that we get a chance to be around. And it's such a it's such a varied list from, you know, Kevin Hanna to Dane Espigard, very different. And then, of course, Dave Duran to Mike Muriel, very different as well. How do you feel like you've pulled together the best from all of these different types of leaders to kind of help you forge your path? Yeah, so I, and this might be confusing, but from a visual standpoint, I always think of when I'm reading a book or different points of reference, I think of like circles. And sometimes they're concentric where there's like overlap and there's things that you you agree with and you don't agree with and you believe and don't believe. And so like, I remember Dave at one point telling me, because we always talked about this is a place that where it's about personal development. And I remember when I, right before I left the business, because I left the business because I wasn't growing myself anymore. I had kind of coasted and kind of wasn't doing the things I needed to grow. I was kind of just maintaining and plateaued. And I said something like, Dave, this is supposed to be a self-improvement or personal development business. Why am I not developing? He's like, well, you have to do that yourself. I'm like, no, you need to make me do it. And right there, it was like, until I decided to do the work, I was never going to grow myself. And so that was one of the, the main causes of why I left. And so when I left those two years, I went, I went deep on that. And I really spent a lot of time developing myself and how to think about things and get perspective. And so, you know, it's easy in retrospect to go like, hey, these conversations led me to these distinctions and allowed me to kind of come back and, and and have the success I've had. But just integrating all those different people and kind of going like, hey, what aligns, what doesn't align? What what do I agree with? What what do I like from this? And come up with my playlist or like how I want to approach the business. So I don't have a specific example from any of those other than just like that line that, hey, this is a business that you actually you have to develop yourself. This is not a this is not like this is what we're about, but you have to do the work in order to get it. And so that really kind of empowered me to dive deep on the things that mattered most to me. Yeah. And certainly every one of those people, while they're all very different types of personalities and different leadership styles, every one of those people you rattled off is in some ways working on themselves, has always been somebody who has been developing themselves. And I guess you could see that happening and you could sort of pull from the best of each person and have those examples as well in your life. So pretty cool. Yeah. Those people were always pulling me up. It was never like, man, this guy is a drain on me. They were always pulling me up and inspiring me to be a better version of myself, whether I knew it or not at the time. Yeah. Excellent. Dane says you are great at helping people to see the value of the district manager position. And I think it's particularly interesting because you did leave for two years and then and then come back. You were a district manager for a number of years before you left. You've been a pillar in uh, the company since you've been back, why has the district manager role been so meaningful for so long uh, in your life? Yeah. So as, as you mentioned, so I left and like I said, in 2012, and I, I was gone for a couple of years. And when I left, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew it was time for me to leave. And I left, like I said before, because I wasn't knowing now why I left was because I wasn't fulfilled with the position because I personally wasn't growing myself. And essentially, I was forced to do that because I put myself in really tough positions in 2013 and, and 2014. And so when I was able to come back, I came back for a couple of reasons, right? Like I had these different visions of why I should come back and how I came back. But when I was considering coming back, I, I thought about all the things I wanted. And what I realized was all the things I wanted in a new position, I had it at, at Cutco two years ago, but I just didn't see it at that time. And the, the most compelling vision I had was I wanted to be a person of influence. I wanted to be a person that helped other people to kind of just challenge the status quo and think about life a little bit differently than what just you're, you're handed or given from society. 
And I thought I had, I, I thought, hey, if I go back and be a DM, I think that that is the most influential position I could possibly have right now because of all the different points of reference that we come into contact with young people, whether it's on campus for a 30-second interaction, whether it's in training, whether it's in an interview, whether it's someone who decides to work with us for longer than a couple of days, and a couple of weeks, and a couple of months, and a couple of years, I might be the most influential person. And I thought about myself in, in terms of like, if I show up the right way for those interactions, I can make more of an impact than anything else. And I, and I think about people like Socrates, where we still talk about Socrates thousands of years later because he taught people how to think. And, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. equating myself to Socrates, but the idea that I could potentially have influence on somebody by how I show up to an interaction gave me a lot of energy towards that. And I was more excited about that than anything else before. And so, and the other, the other big thing that made it really easy for me to come back was in 2013, there were some changes to the comp plan. And I remember being like, if I go back to the business and if I'm no better than I was, and I think I've learned a lot in the last two years about myself, I'm going to make, you know, 30 to 50,000 times, 30, not times, but 30 to $50,000 more doing the same job if I was the same. And there's no way I'm going to be the same. So let's, there's no downside to it. And I just yeah. the people, the people that, you know, all the people that I talked about before are still in the business. So why, why would I not go back and give this a shot, but do it my way this time around? Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. What are the things when, when uh, young district manager candidates talk to you about the role, what are some of the things that you like to say to them to help them see the value of the opportunity? I think a lot of times what happens is when when you're working with other, well, this has been my experience, when other DMs are talking about the job, I think often, especially if they're in their first couple of years of being a DM, they're telling people what to do, but not giving them reasons why to do it, right? And so if someone says, you should go out, like essentially what I hear a lot is, I told them to go out as a DM because it's awesome. And the DM themselves haven't actually thought why they're a DM in the first place. And so it's hard for someone to kind of like give them all the whys in terms of what someone's looking for in the position. And so when I sit down and ask somebody like, Hey, what are your options? What do you want to do? I just ask them questions and then give them compelling reasons why they should be here. Right. And I'm not really attached to the outcome. So it's easy to kind of say things persuasively in that I believe that this is a position of influence and this is a position that you can have a great lifestyle and you can do all these things here. Why go somewhere else? If you have that somewhere else, then, you know, maybe it is a good idea for you to leave, but you know, if you don't have it, this is a good place to figure it out. I think that gives just a lot of credence to that. There was a, as as you're saying that right now, there was a conversation I remember having, I think sometime as as I left the business and maybe right before I came back, I was having a conversation with one of my friends and it was about work or about the beliefs that we've created that I've allowed, I've been allowed to have at Cutco and Ector. And I was really excited. Like this was at a bar and I was really just, I felt really energetic and very passionate. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if I could feel like this all the time, I would be really excited about life. And so I started to have this filter of like, hey, how do I just talk about the things I that give me a lot of energy and minimize the things that don't give me a lot of energy? And so, you know, since 2014, I really tried to like maximize that as much as possible in terms of how do I talk about the things that give me energy and speak those into other people so they can feel that and, and feel the genuineness and the, the the passion behind those things. And so that's something that I think maybe is a little bit more unique to my personality or not my personality, but just my situation, my experience that when someone needs to be sold on why they should stick around, I I bring that to the table. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was good. You've talked about the importance of being yourself and, you know, how Greg, for example, allowed you and Dane to operate in that manner when you were young district managers. And, And I know that 
the idea of authenticity is an important core value for you. Tell us a little bit more about that and why it's so important. Yeah, I, I just think it's any like like I mentioned before, when I came back in 2013, I felt like there were parts of the business that I was I was doing because it was kind of like the scripture handed down, like, hey, this is how we do things. And giving that time away allowed me to go, well, maybe it's not the only way we can do things. Maybe there's a different way to do something. And so I wanted to do it with, with, with what resonated with me. And, you know, one of the things that I tell myself now is if, if I can't have fun doing something, I don't want to do it. It's actually better for me not to do it than have fun. I also learned that I can be a, a huge energy suck if I'm doing things that go against how I feel in that moment. So I need to kind of be intentional about how I show up for certain situations. And so I try to focus on doing the things that give me energy that and I can speak with, again, enthusiasm and, and, and passion at that. And I think from a standpoint of authenticity, I think there was a, a conversation I remember having with an applicant probably back in, I don't know, five or six years ago on campus. And the, the kid was dressed up really sharp. You, you could tell the guy was going to be successful at whatever he did in terms of the next steps. And, and he essentially asked like, Hey, how can you help me become more professional? And I looked at him blankly and I was like, I don't think I can actually help you become more professional at all. But I think what I can help you do is become a lot more authentic. I don't think CEOs, when they go home, they sit there and have professional meal with their families and they're worried about professional pajamas or they're, they're humans. And I think what I can help you do is tap into more of like who you actually are at your core. So you can show up better for whatever you're going to do. And hopefully be more fulfilled and successful because of that. And so after I kind of had that conversation with people, it became kind of my champion call. of I don't want to help people get a professional experience. I want to help people tap into like who they really are and show up more authentically. And I think authenticity comes from really developing self-confidence. Self-confidence comes from doing things that you're not sure of that you can do and then doing them and then becoming more confident and then being more likely to show up to that situation with your unique abilities and talents. And that's essentially what the best years I've had in Cutco and Vector is what we've championed. In 2018, that was our model for all summer long is like, we're going to help people become more authentic versions of themselves. And, you know, I knew how to, what I was not worried about was CPO. I was worried about how can we do that? And as a byproduct, we actually had our best CPO summer, my career, and we had just phenomenal experiences that whole summer. My staff championed it. Uh, that was the easiest summer I've ever had from a district manager standpoint. Our launch percentage was was 91% for three days of training uh, all summer long, which still to this day, I'm not really sure how we pulled it off other than the fact is we were very clear about what we wanted to be about, which was we're going to help each individual kind of realize who they are and, and help this job be a byproduct of how they live a more authentic life. Mm, amazing. You talked about helping people really realize who they are at their core. I think for anybody to truly live authentically, they, they have to have done a lot of deep thinking about that subject. Chris, if I turn that around on you and ask, who are you at your core? What are some things that, that come out? Yeah, this also makes me think of another situation, if you don't mind me saying this. Uh, when I started dating my girlfriend of now four and a half years, we started dating and she asked me at some point, hey, are you kind? I said, yeah, I think I'm kind, but I don't think that'd be a top, 10 quality, anyone would say that Chris Naku is kind. And at the time, my roommate was there with his girlfriend who knew me for a number of years. And I said, hey, guys, if you had to name qualities of me, what would they be? And none of them were kind. And all the words they described, I was super excited about and super, I was like, yep, that is me. And I, I own that. And what I realized at that moment was, if you're going to be you, you have to kind of like own whatever that comes with it and, and kind of not, you're not going to always meet everyone's expectations in terms of what they want you to be. 
And so for me, I think to this point where I am is I feel like authenticity is an important thing, but there's other qualities that make up authenticity. And for me, it's, it's integrity. It's being who you say you're going to be. It's, you know, at my core, I think I'm a really resourceful person. Uh, I believe in, you know, at any given moment, we're always tapped into some higher, like higher guidance and higher power and, and kind of allowing those things to influence us. Each person has, has internal divine providence or guidance. And we also have ego and trying to live more in the life of, of the guidance, right? And trying to tap into that because I think that's my best version of myself when I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to be a person of integrity. So if I say something, I do it. I, I often won't say something unless I mean it. And so that kind of helps me be specific with my words because oftentimes I think we can exaggerate. I try not to exaggerate. I try to be very exact with my words, which drives my girlfriend crazy. I try to be loving. That's something I'm working on is I think I can be a very loving person, but I also have been in times where I don't share it. Uh, one of the things I loved about Dane is Dane broke me down at a very young age. He, I, didn't, and I didn't let people in and Dane broke in and, and got in there. And so he's been a very instrumental person in just helping me be more open and showing who I really am versus kind of holding back and, and being uh, like more of a cool person versus a real person. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I think that really resonates with me is playfulness is I try not to take things too seriously. And if, like I said earlier, if I can't have fun doing something, I don't really want to do it. But I think oftentimes people as they get older have a hard time remembering that and how to be playful and how to be light, and how to have fun. And so I learned from another experience. Uh, at my lowest point is I was dating a girl at the time. And, you know, when we started dating, she would often say, who are you? Like in, in awe and amazement of like who I was and how I was showing up at those moments. But when I would get around her parents, I didn't do that. I often defaulted to like, in my mind, the hierarchical situation of like, hey, he's the, he's the father. I'm going to let him set the tone of how we're going to interact. And I would often be very like timid and quiet. And essentially, her parents didn't like me. <laughs> and so that was kind of hard to hear because she's like, why don't you just show them who you are? And so at that moment, I decided, you know what, I'm not going to hold back anymore. I'm just going to be who I am in any scenario. And so if I only get one chance to make an impression, I might as well swing away at it because who's going to be the more impressive individual, me at 100% or me at 20%. And so I've often tried to role model that for other people is, hey, if you get one shot or one impression at the, uh, of an interaction, you might as well take your best swing at it because it might be your only interaction. And so I've tried to role model that for the, the last several years for people so that I can hopefully inspire them to do the same thing in their, their daily life. Yeah. I think an important distinction that I'd like to throw in here is that get, taking your best swing at having a great interaction with somebody does not mean that you try to impress them or that you try to be somebody who you're not so that they like you, right? It's revealing who you are. It's being willing to reveal who you are so that you can see if you resonate with them, right? And that's definitely one of the things I feel like is important. You said something in there about you won't always meet others' expectations. And that's an important insight for people to realize. It's like, we're not cut out to have powerful relationships with every single person who comes in or out of our life, right? And so coming to terms with that, I think is important and helps to bring out that authenticity, helps you to be who you are. Because what you're doing is you're not trying to get other people to like you. You're trying to reveal who you are so that you can see who likes you, who resonates with you, who really clicks with you in the way that you and Dane did, for example. Yeah. And I think like to your point, I think it's really important for us as district managers to kind of raise the flag of who we are as a person. So people can either rally around it or say, hey, you know what? I, I appreciate it, but it's not for me. But without us knowing who we are and showing up, to the best of our ability, that's not possible. Yeah. Another way that you put this was you said something about being real 
versus being cool, right? You're not trying to be the cool leader that, you know, every kid wants to be around. You're being the real leader that people will look at and say, okay, that's who I want to be, or that's who I want to be around. Or maybe in some cases they'll be like, oh man, I don't know if I can be around this guy. And that's okay. Yeah. There's definitely times where I know I'm not going to say like, if I, if I talk for 30 minutes, oftentimes I miss 85% of the time with any individual, but if I can hit 15% of the time with something that resonates with them, I think I can make a connection. And so it's a matter of kind of just trusting that internal guidance to say things and knowing you're not going to be perfect every time. But if you just keep going with your intention to try to connect, you'll eventually get there. Yeah. Awesome. Great stuff. Great stuff. Chris, one of my experiences I remember in the business was visiting you. You and I are both big sports fans and uh, you love the Milwaukee Bucks. I love the Golden State Warriors. It just so happened when I visited you that the Warriors were in town playing the Milwaukee Bucks. You probably remember this. The Warriors were 24-0 and 0 to start the season. It was uh, December 12th, 2015. So, wow, go, going on seven years ago here pretty soon. And uh, the Warriors were 24-0, and 0, and the Bucks promptly inflicted the Warriors' first loss upon them of the season. And we were there. We were there. You remember that? I definitely remember that. I remember, uh, you know, thinking, wow, is this actually going to happen? And then I remember after the game, the Bucks thought it was like they won a world championship. And I remember that I remember watching with you next to me, looking at Curry and the other guys in the team laughing that the Bucks were taking it so seriously. And I was like, <laughs> they're in trouble the next game. And the, yeah, the Warriors definitely rolled them the next game. But <laughs> yes, indeed. And that this was a young, Bucks team with Giannis and Chris Middleton in the very early stages of their careers. Yes. It's been great to see them grow. It was awesome to see them win a championship. I was rooting for them uh, that year against Phoenix. In fact, when Phoenix was ahead two games to zero, I bet a guy who gave me six to one odds that the Bucks would, he gave me six to one odds. I said, the Bucks will win the series. They were down two zero. He gave me six to one odds. And I bet that the Bucks would still win the series. And they promptly won four games in a row and won four to two. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I also made similar wagers like that, but I remember, um, after game one and Giannis came back, I couldn't believe Giannis came back. I couldn't believe he was out there playing after he hyperextended the knee. Cause that thing was, you know, was disgusting. And then game two, the spurt, if you remember this, the Suns won, but they hit 23 pointers and, but they, they won by a small margin. And I remember thinking if it takes 23 pointers to win by six points or whatever it was, I think the bucks have a really good shot at actually making this happen. And, um, as the rest, as they say, as history. And I was, I was happy to say that I had been there the whole time. I invested in the season tickets. One of the perks of being a DM went back in 2015 and we had tickets. So we were at every game for the championship. We actually got to storm the court, which was amazing. And I think Milwaukee is really lucky in terms of we have who I think is the most, he's the best superstar to watch in the game in terms of his attitude, his personification. He doesn't complain. He doesn't, he doesn't showboat. He, he's not about himself. He's about team. He's about hard work. He's about, I think he's just a phenomenal role model. And you know, what's even great about Giannis is he's still human, right? He talks about ego. He talks about grace, past, present, all that stuff. And there's still moments because he's 27 years old or 26 years old or however old he is where he has moments where sometimes, you know, ego gets the best of them. In playoffs last year, he dunked on Horford and then he like shoulder checked Horford or said something. And that all of a sudden inspired Horford to go out and score like 20 points the rest of the game. And they lost game three because of that. And I really believe if, you know, maybe he wouldn't have done that, 
the Bucks, if they would have got past the Celtics, I, I think I don't know if the Warriors would have had a, an answer for Giannis. I think he would average forty and twenty, but we'll never know. I'm glad the Warriors won. Uh, man, the Warriors have won a few NBA series where there was a guy on the other team that averaged forty and twenty or something along those same lines. You know, so That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Warriors don't worry about having an answer for the other guys. The Warriors focus on making the other guys have an answer for them. And that's uh, always pretty tough with uh, the cast of characters they have. So they have a squad. I was rooting for them. So hopefully, maybe in 2023, we'll see that matchup. I'd be pretty. Yeah, I would be. I'd be stoked to see that matchup as well. I'd say a lot of the same things about Curry that you said about Giannis, and it's great to see stars like that. They're easy to root for when you have people like that on your team. And Middleton and Holiday, like these are guys that are easy to root for. And so definitely, uh, I've definitely become a good solid bucks fan i bought a hat the night that i was at the game with you or you bought me the hat i can't remember but uh i've got a in my milwaukee bucks hat i rock that every once in a while so anyway yes. do, you yeah. remember, do you remember your shooting performance at the uh, the apartment before the game of course of course i do yeah 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 i, I know i made at least one you did, you, did. You, you were not you were not the, the worst of all so that was, uh, <laughs> that was that's right you used to have this like two-story apartment with a high ceiling and you had a basketball hoop in there with a three-point line and everybody would shoot hoops at your uh, at your place before uh uh when they came over so it's pretty cool yeah. that was, was awesome good memory there for sure exactly exactly well hey uh chris uh to wrap this up you know the podcast theme is about changing lives and i'm just wondering if you look into your own future how you aspire to change people's lives through what you do yeah so a couple of years ago, actually, I built an app called Moment of Grace. And uh, the idea of the Moment of Grace is, is essentially to take a, a second or a couple moment, minutes, seconds, whatever you want to call it, to just send appreciation, thanks or gratitude to somebody. And it's something that I've done often. And you know what I've learned through my, probably my past five years is it doesn't take much to make someone feel special or appreciated or, what, or whatever the case is. And it's, it's kind of random. And I really would love to go deeper into that with most people. What I found is the feedback I've gotten from the app is people love the idea of it, but the actual practicality of it, of sending a video is scary because they're worried about what judgment looks like if someone sends a message and they go, wow, this is weird. And so I think the next the next tier of that is is kind of really helping people kind of understand that it doesn't matter what you send. It's more about just the intention behind it and helping people feel more confident that they don't have to be perfect. All they needed to be is themselves. And if their intention is pure to, to make someone's day better because of their interaction, I think that's great. And so whatever I can do to help kind of expand that belief, whether that's inside the vector business or outside the business, that's something I think is definitely is definitely calling to me to kind of help people kind of live a more authentic lifestyle where they're confident with who they're, they're showing up and they're enough in any interaction. So Cutco has been a, a phenomenal tool for me to do that to this point. And, and going forward, I'm excited to not just do that in Cutco, but also, you know, outside of any interaction I have. That's extremely inspiring, Chris. I really appreciate hearing that. Congrats on all your great success. And thanks so much for bringing some excellent value today to the podcast. I know people have gotten a lot of value out of this. So thanks. Awesome, Dan. Thanks a lot. What an awesome conversation. I trust that you really enjoyed that one with Chris Naku. The theme of just being your authentic self really resonated throughout, starting with him taking this job and just having been somebody who was into sales and was into influencing people and had a chance to lean into something like that 
as a, a first quote unquote real job and took on the Cutco opportunity, betting on himself and all that stuff right in those early parts. I thought that was really valuable. And that that theme of authenticity, right, of leaning into what you believe in, being who you are, has carried all the way throughout his career. He talked about being authentic versus professional. He talked about being real versus being cool, doing things that give you energy. I thought that was, those were all some really valuable concepts. Also, following through and being a person of integrity, doing what you say you'll do, and why that's so important, why that's so valuable. I was reminded of a quote I heard many years ago, which is that it's important to make commitments with care so you can honor them with integrity, right? So think about when you make commitments, right? What are you signing yourself up for? I think that many of us, myself included, have a tendency to overcommit a lot of times. We try to take on too many things, and it's important just to take a step back now and then and evaluate that and just make sure that whatever you get yourself into, you're able to do to the best of your ability and follow through. Be a person of integrity. Do what you say you'll do. I thought it was also instructive, the concept that we, we won't always meet other people's expectations, right? That's a tough thing to come to terms with in life, but it is a part of being your authentic self. What an impressive list of influences Chris has had upon him during his career and as I mentioned in the interview, it just speaks a lot to the power of our community in Cutco Vector and just being around so many amazing individuals, many of whom uh, are people who have been featured on this podcast, who have incredible stories, lead incredible lives, and set a positive example for all of us in so many ways. And I just want to end with what Chris said about the moment of grace idea and just the idea of making people feel special about making someone's day better because of your interaction with them. That to me is the essence of changing lives, is the essence of positive influence, right? How do we leave people feeling after an interaction with us? Are they feeling more inspired, more encouraged, more motivated to do the things that they wanna do in life? Are we helping lead people to where they want to be? That's the essence, I feel, of what we do here at Cutco Vector. It's great to see Chris Niku setting such a positive example in that way. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Chris today, and I hope that because of this interaction with Chris today, that your day is a little bit better. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.